What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers, episode 137, Ripley's Game. I am one of your hosts, George Tarrant, and as you can see, Travis and I are not in the same room. Entirely my fault. A comedy of errors of shit happening for me today. So I have been a big, big letdown for everyone. So I do apologize. The man who does not let anyone down is um, the Shangri-La himself, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I am fine and dandy. Uh, welcome to this week's stream, everyone. <laughs> yes. We had an eventful day in the city here. We are hosting um, mm-hmm. our American overlords or one thereof. Mm-hmm. Right, they're blocked off a street outside my apartment so the U.S. Mm-hmm. Secretary of State could drive into a fancy hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he was in an Uber because, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm pretty sure he looked like the, the driver looked a little confused about where he was going. Um <laughs> Now, see, in that scenario, there, there's a small part of me that would have just wanted to get like one of those laser dot cat toys. Just put it out the window. <laughs> just see what happens. <laughs> that would have probably been a poor plan. Um, <laughs> I like but, um, we're just glad that um, to have Anthony Blinken in town. To our American listeners, you probably know who that is. Uh, everyone else probably doesn't need to worry, but. You know, finally letting tourists back into the country. Yay. And we're getting the the priority people in first. Mm. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got uh, we've got quite a show for you. Um, I'm going to be talking a couple of the big release um, video games recently. We've got um, more Book of Bob Fett and Peacemaker to talk. Uh, Travis has finally watched and experienced some of Critical Role's content in The Legend of Vox Machina. We have got our chain movie of the week, Ripley's Game, starring John Malkovich. Um, Travis is then going to be picking our link in the chain for that. And Travis has kept things real classy this week. He's watched Jackass Forever, Pammy and Tommy, and The Tinder Swindler. So we've got some interesting stuff coming up. Where, my good friend, are we going to start is the important question. Oh, lost your audio, sir. Uh, maybe because I was on mute. That would be why. My bad. Um, <laughs> maybe we should start with, um, I think we've been doing well recently, starting mm-hmm. with um, the chain movie. And, you know, I'm sure everyone's very curious to fear, hear what we think about a 20-year-old obscure movie from Europe. So, Yeah, um, why not? Let's, let's with start game. with Ripley's Game. So for those that don't know, and it's probably... A, good few people because it's not exactly a high high attention franchise um the ripley story um specifically the character of tom ripley played in this movie by john malkovich was also played by a younger matt damon in the talented mr ripley as well as a couple of other adaptations of books centered around this anti-hero character of tom ripley um this is technically kind of a sequel to the talented mr ripley as it is set in the the elder years of the character's life um well i would say it doesn't i've actually never seen the talented mr ripley uh but the um matt damon version mm. but um i have a feeling that this is not intended as a direct sequel to that film no i mean it there's there's a couple of subtle nods in conversation where 
uh, Tom is talking about little bits and pieces that if you're very astute, um, you might, you could make a connection between so like, oh, this is what, what they're referring to. And particularly, um, we'll get deeper into it, the sequence on the train um, that, and he ma he makes a comment about first class not being, a, um, it didn't used to be this packed and this busy. Um, and that is, it does have a little bit of a tie back to the talented Mr. Ripley, but getting into the weeds. So what is Ripley's game? According to the number one used description of Ripley's game on IMDb, it is a dying man in need of money is persuaded to assassinate a European crime boss. That is really boiling it down. It's a very brief description of a deeper story, I think. Yes, absolutely. Um, so the dying man is played by Dugray Scott and his wife, uh, Lena Headey, most famous for, for most people, I would guess, for Game of Thrones, um, as well as she was the villain in the Carl Urban Dread movie. And she, was... Uh, she was in Fighting With My Family. More recently, she was in yes. Gunpowder Milkshake. That's right. Yes, absolutely. So she's been around for, for quite a while. And um, this is quite an interesting one, seeing much younger Lena Headey than... I was gonna say for a second I was like, is that Kira Knightley? Like there was a very yeah, strong yeah. little um, bit Kira Knightley. And Lena Healy was hot <laughs> like when yeah. she was younger. I mean, like I yeah. I guess maybe she some people still think she is. I, I'm sorry to, to to sound like a little bit because uh, <laughs> she is only um she's only uh 49, but that's a like that's a 49-year-old face that has lived. Yeah, like, yeah. It looks like she's had a lot of plastic surgery, and I, I think Hollywood has very much had its way with her. Honestly, I just um, think, like, I mean, I don't know. People think she was sexy or something in the Game of Thrones, but like, wow, she was an incredibly beautiful woman mm -hmm, when, in her mm -hmm. younger years, twenty years ago uh, at twenty nine. So, um, but yeah, I, for a second, I was like, I had never noticed the resemblance between her and Kira Knightley before. Mm -hmm. but, yeah, hundred percent. Um. Back on track, uh, DeGray, Scott, DeGray Scott has got, uh, I think it's pancreatic cancer or something like that, um, and he's basically, we meet him and he's he's bitter, he's jaded, and he's trying to find reasons to keep living and stay positive for his wife and his child, um, but it's not until a dinner party, which I don't quite understand the, the, the main setup for this, um, we meet um, the character of Tom Ripley is heading back to this very um, later described as overly restored manor house villa. Um, and just in a passing thing to Grace Scott's character, um, one Jonathan Trevaney, he um, just invites Tom Ripley to, to a party. And Tom turns up and then so like meets Lena Headey's character, who um, is Sarah, and they uh, he then goes into a room where basically DeGray Scott's um, Jonathan is lambasting why Tom Ripley is a horrible person. It's like, okay, so why did you even invite him if you don't like it? But that is kind of the inciting incident for everything, and it does somewhat illustrate and in a rather nice way, I think, the the broken psyche and mentality of the character of Tom Ripley, because it's very clear straight away the way that John Malkovich plays the scene, that he is 
a volatile gentleman um, and definitely puts Jonathan at um, basically cows Jonathan in front of everyone. And then the story progresses and a character played by Ray Winston from um, Tom's past comes back asking for Tom's help in assassinating um, a European crime boss, as the, the one-sentence descriptor says. Tom says he doesn't want to do it, but he can find a patsy, and the more innocent, the better. And he uses Jonathan. He gives um, uh, Ray Jonathan's information and, through coercion, persuades Jonathan with a, a promise of $50,000 of the money to go and kill this guy just with a silence pistol, bang, done, business over. And after some moral ambiguity and toing and froing on the possibility, Jonathan decides to go through with it. Um, and this kind of opens up a bit of a door because it does give Jonathan's character a bit of a verve for life again, which we've seen that stereotype played a little bit in movies, quite cliched, but it's played a little bit more nuanced in this, I think. Then, obviously, the other shoe drops and um, Ray Winston's character, who is uh, Reeves, he um, just says, oh, it's it's not just one. You've got to kill this other guy now and you've got to do it with a garrote because it means something to, to these, these people. And at that point, Tom has had a bit of a change of heart. He doesn't want to, to sully Jonathan any further in this world of assassinations and then the story spirals from there it's an interesting one what, what are your thoughts on it Trav? this feels like a very old film like i had to keep reminding mm. myself i was watching a film from this century um, yeah. because it really felt like a film from maybe the 70s uh yeah. or older um and not just in the style of filmmaking but in the setting but i believe it was it was it I think in the, in the, in the present day because they're on mobile phones, um, you know, yeah, you yeah. know, yeah, the yeah. old ones. But you know, but um, but yeah, it didn't feel like it's present day. It didn't feel like two thousand two. I think, mm. if I'm not mistaken, this film came out uh, the same year. Going to double check as the Born Identity. Uh, yeah, yes, two thousand two. Yeah, and just looking, it came out a year after. Another anti-hero movie, Hannibal. Yes, and I could feel I could feel some some connection to a film like Hannibal, mm. where it didn't necessarily feel mm. older. But maybe that yeah. was the fact that they were both largely set and filmed in Europe, or at least mm -hmm. large portions of Hannibal were set and filmed in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, we we reviewed Hannibal for the show I think last year. Did? Um, yeah, a um, And I don't know. I didn't think that film was that great. Um, but so parts of it, especially the train scene, it just sort of felt reminding me of something a little bit, you know, Hitchcockian in parts, almost yeah, almost north by northwest, nowhere near as good as that. No. But there were, there was a vibe there of those kind of films you saw in the seventies. Um, yeah, and in the, in the assassin, the initial assassination scene in the zoo, again mm. reminded me of something you might have seen from that period of film. I found yeah. myself constantly having to drag my head back and go. This isn't the seventies. It's not set in the seventies. Yeah, listen, I think it is. It's set in the present day. Um, yeah. at, at, at the time the film was made, and I don't know if that was a conscious um, creative choice from the director, 
um, to try and give it a, a vibe of it. I mean, one of the things this film from the 70s did was have an active sense of paranoia mm. um, about mm. them. They did very, very nicely. If you think we talked a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, about um, uh, the body snatches, invasion of the body snatches, which yeah. is a palpable sense of paranoia throughout the film yeah. or yeah. day of the, con- uh, the uh, condor or something like that. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what I, I mean, there's a more spy horror and spy films and but this mm-hmm. one kind of had that feel to me. So I thought that was strange. Um, not unpleasant, not yeah. nothing put me off. It was just like going, what, what is it? I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but about what it was, it kept making me feel like I was seeing film from mm. a different era. Uh, it certainly felt, I, as I said, I've not seen all of the talents mm. of Mr. Ripley, but it didn't fit that, that film, despite being a couple of years before this, mm. seems, in my impression, to be a lot more contemporary than this. Yes, absolutely agree. This movie, from the opening title credits um, and the way that it's presented, it is really wearing its European production values on its sleeve. It feels like a French-Italian movie in every sense of the word, not just from literally the production company behind it um, and the names of the producers and the editors and everyone, all of them that are, that are coming onto the screen, but just the presentation of it. There's a, a strange starkness to this, um, to the to the opening of the movie. It looks different. It's lit differently. It's shot differently. Yeah. The, the way the story moves is differently. Um mm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I kind of think it's, I think it's actually kind of cool. I don't know yeah. if that still exists um, 20 years later, but uh, I think it was at least for still fairly recently, it was kind of, it's kind of cool that you could watch a film from a different part of the world and it had such a different feel to it than Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we've become a little bit more you know, homogenized since then. I'm not yeah. sure. Um, I have some. Critiques. I wonder if, sorry, no, go on. No, please. I was just going, I wonder if that is um, more because of what is being served up to us. I I would like to believe that these types of movies are still very much being made, um, particularly thinking about French and German cinema and their adherence to the the art of cinema and how they, they do like to sell their cinema as art pieces. Um, but what gets picked up for international distribution is very much, oh, this is the new Luc Besson movie. You can go to the cinema and feel like you're watching a world cinema experience. Luc Besson hasn't made a French movie since Angela. <laughs> it's, it's been a long time since he made a very French-feeling film. Everything is That's very a good. Point. Is I can't recall the last flat-out French film I saw at the cinema. Yeah. Um, wow. Or maybe... I, I can't remember the last. I can remember the last Italian film I saw at the cinema. Actually, it was in two thousand and seventeen. Um, mm. So I guess it's maybe that's part of it. We not. I don't see a lot of, yeah. of flat out. I mean, even so, this is a, a, I guess, a, an American film shot in Europe. Um, I guess how to describe mm. it that way because it's made in English with mainly uh, a, a cast of an American and three Brits. So uh, it's difficult to know how to exactly classify it. Um, mm. So it's not straight out of a, a European film. But it's, um, it's an interesting... I wonder if anybody else can... If you're watching and you've seen the film and you feel it watching it and you've got a suggestion about what it is you think it's different about it. Um, or, or are we simply so far removed now? America. 
This was a European, um, it was Italian, French, and UK co-production. No America. You know, it doesn't surprise me. It it doesn't actually surprise me a great Mm. deal. I was going to say, or are we just so far removed now from 2002? It's so long ago, and the look and feel of 2002 is so foreign in 2022 that it feels like a very old film when, in my head, 2002 was a couple of years ago. True. But I I don't know if that's genuinely it, though, because you think about The Matrix, the first Matrix. That came out right at the turn of the century. That's over 20 years old. And yet the the look and feel of it, it still feels very fresh. And yet it's, it's like flick phones and things like that that had their moment in the sun and they disappeared and they came back some somewhat and things like that. I don't I don't think anything that, that is an extraordinary film though. That is an extraordinary piece of art that yeah. you know can stand some of them stand the test of time, but you see your film and you're like like if you like music and you listen to a white album, that feels incredible mm-hmm. in contemporary mm-hmm. even now. And it was recorded sixty years ago. So you know it's just a, probably less 55, 60 um, years ago, so you, you kind of I think you're judging it. I don't think we judge it by the absolute best out there. We judge it mm. by something that's fairly mediocre. Like, unfortunately, that's what Ripley's game is. I have some critiques of this. Mm. Um, it's to be to be polite. It is languid with its pace. Yes, yes. It's an hour yeah. fifty, so it doesn't get my usual critique of it's too long. Cut out half an hour because I think that's a reasonable amount of time to tell your story in. But when Matt Reeves needs two hours and 55 minutes to tell a Batman movie, um, Mm -hmm. you know, like an hour 50 is is a very reasonable expectation to sit through. But it goes at a snail's pace at certain times. Like it kind of, it has these moments of action and excitement and and brutality, which actually kind of break their spell nicely. But in between, Mm. there's some very long periods of very talky scenes of mm. not much happening, big, expensive-looking European buildings, and yeah. it doesn't—I don't know—it does that doesn't really work in this. In the sense, it's like, come on, guys! You know, I don't feel like this is moving the story along particularly. Um, mm. And it, despite the fact that it takes its time, there are parts of the story that I feel are deeply underdeveloped. Um, mm. The synopsis mentions a dying family man in need of money. The fact the guy is dying is mentioned twice sort of thing like it's mentioned as a hook for um ray winston's character reeves to try and get him involved in the initial scheme to kill the gangster in berlin mm-hmm. and, oh you'll have his money to, I'll, I'll give you I'll set you up with this fancy doctor in berlin he'll help you and blah 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 but yeah it really isn't a deeply motivating thing it happens you know uh happens to sort of really really reinforce it that's why Jonathan's doing what he's doing and you know this is why he keeps buying in is because he's dying it's just kind of there but it's very much a background issue for me yeah yeah that's very that's very fair um I feel like this is trying to be laser focused as a character piece rather than the story is very incidental um the but at the same time it's I don't. I can't decide if DeGray Scott is a good actor or not, because his character is 
quite boring in this and especially when you're going up against two pretty heavy hitting actor character actors of Ray, Ray Winston and John Malkovich who he's a very wishy-washy character isn't he yeah but then every time that Ray is on screen that Reeves is on screen it just lights up he he knows how to play that character it's a bit of a stereotype for him of so oh a gang an English gangster but he he does know how to do it and there's he imbues certain elements elements of level beyond character development that you need, and he just plays with it. The fact that he's always in like a fine suit, and then when he's running away for his life, he's just in tracky decks, and um, there's the insinuation that he's gay and things like that. So like it's it's all nice little extra bits that don't actually serve the story at all, but it's just they put thought into that character. And similarly with John Malkovich. Um, his the way that his dialect is, and that that very floaty, um, so, somewhat effeminate lilt to his voice as he talks, it's threatening, but at the same time, kind of keeps you off kilter a little bit as to like, oh, is he just being polite and posh, or? Is he actually thinking I'm going to just gut you like a fish? But he plays it really well. And so when those two are in their scenes, those scenes are really cool, really tense, and they're, they're tight and the, the story comes alive. And then when anytime DeGrace Scott's in the scene, it's like, oh, okay, you're carrying a bit of weight here, aren't you? Ooh. I mean, Malkovich is obviously, I don't know, one of the best actors of his generation, one would say. I think he's mm -hmm. kind of an icon, maybe, yeah. fair mm -hmm. to say. Mm -hmm. uh, Doug Ray Scott is currently starring in the CW series Batwoman. <laughs> and the knife into the CW shows from Travis, as per every episode. And scene. <laughs> like, I mean, enough said. Uh, the, can he see a good actor? No. Mm -hmm. uh, not particularly. Um, but he had his moment in the sun there in the early 2000s. He was in the, that Mission Impossible sequel and yeah. Um, Deep Impact or something like that, one of those asteroid films. And oh, yeah. Um, so I, I think this is he was lucky to land into uh, be parachuted into a role which is with a bunch of people who are significantly more talented than he was. Mm. Mm. The other part of the film I found it was a little underdeveloped, and maybe I missed a memo somewhere. Mm. Um, well, I don't really get why Tom Ripley was helping him. Like, I kind of got, as you sort of noted, the gist of the film is Tom Ripley walks into a room at this party, Jonathan Trevaney's sticking the stick in the boots into him, saying he's a bit of a douche. Americans have got no taste. Why he's, you know, renovated that place up for Wazoo, yada, yada, yada. And it's a bit of an awkward scene. You're like, okay. And then, you know, Reeves comes along once someone killed and Malcolm and Tom Ripley decides to roll Jonathan under the bus because he's been, he's pissed him off basically. Mm. Um, I mean, even that setup doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. It's like, why would Reeves take, you know, try even want somebody who doesn't know what he's doing to try and kill someone? Like, it's it's a kind of a cool idea, but seems like a stretch. But okay, we'll buy that one. But yeah. then once shit hits the fan um, for Jonathan, you know, he's in trouble and he's been forced to do this other hit job. I don't think I actually put together why Tom Ripley cared. Yeah, I think it stems to a scene that felt completely out of place and badly edited and just lost in amongst the shuffle of 
the the scene where he goes to um, uh, Jonathan's house while Jonathan's not there, and he has a conversation with Sarah, and um, just talks about. Uh, she t- explains to him that uh, Jonathan has got cancer, and um, that you know, there's a, so, like every now and then she does relish the idea of Jonathan being dying so that it can just be done with. And I think that's supposed to be more of an emotional hit to kind of awaken that consciousness within the character of Tom, but it doesn't play like that in the scene. And it's a very forgettable scene that is also whispered and they don't really do much with the dialogue and the sound to actually help. They, it, it just sound literally sounds quieter than the rest of the movie. So this pivotal moment or in this inciting incident for Tom's turn to be a little kinder, shall we say, is lost. It's m- literally muted compared to everything else. And it's like, okay, so now he, what is, is he now just trying to fuck over Reeves by pulling that, pulling his support back I, d- I don't really know it was his motivations were murky at best mm. for me um yeah. you know, also the other thing i guess what i was thinking i mean spoiler alert guys it's a 20 year old film i think that i'm not even gonna put spoilers <laughs> i think up. there's no i think the statute of limitations has passed guys yeah. Yeah. um at the end of a film when the the dead the last gangster everyone thought might be dead pops up again and shoots at tom ripley and of course jonathan throws himself in front of ripley yeah uh, that scene didn't work for me. Uh, a, I don't didn't. Well, Jonathan may have felt some degree of gratitude towards Tom for his help. I'm not sure. Did he ever put it together that Tom was the cause of all this trouble? I'm not uh, sure. Yeah, they, they, he actually has a conversation while they're waiting in the in the villa. He says uh, he asks Tom, "Why did you pick me?" And so like, well, initially it was because you insulted me and you you angered me. Um, and he he just gives an explanation, but I can't remember what it was that he says. Yeah, you're right. And I'm so, I'm, but why there was never really a payoff for that, right? Like I can imagine Jonathan might be somewhat annoyed at having been dumped into this situation for simply yeah, offhand he, comment. And if he's, a, he's a very of, calm guy, and then throw himself in front of a bullet, you know, um, yeah. you know, I almost expected, uh, you know, Whitney Houston, you know, to be like, and was like bodyguardist dive in front of him and that felt unearned and it felt strange mm-hmm. to me like this guy's destroyed your life in a period of a couple of weeks because you said something nasty about him at the party yeah and you're now yes he kind of did save your life in the meantime but like i don't know that you would be particularly sad to see the back mm-hmm. of him or did you a guy didn't have time to make the cognitive leap to go if i don't save tom here my family will be dead which is probably yeah. also true but it seemed it just felt like okay yeah. that was a weird choice but then the way tom reacted afterwards was almost i thought i found myself okay he's an actual psychopath yeah because he was quickly into he was an intruder he broke into your house you killed him this is what you do mm. and then he ran off to the opera to watch his girlfriend play piano and you're like lovely i loved that that turnaround because it it illustrated exactly yes he is a legitimate psychopath He's, he's got no conscience. And then they replayed a scene that neither of us actually liked. And yeah, I I think they were trying to play it as 
Jonathan choosing the way he died rather than slowly withering away because of his illness. But they don't really put any, um, like they would have needed to have some conversation earlier on and him saying, I'm scared about dying in a bed or something like that. Just saying that he wants to exit on his own terms, essentially. But that never happened. You're right. And that didn't, again, that comes back to the fact they didn't really put a lot of effort or force behind that he's dying he's dying he's dying he's dying mm-hmm. thing because i kind of forgot that that was happening like i go oh that's right they had that doctor's visit earlier mm. um and maybe maybe it would have been somewhat cliched to have him the character of jonathan more visually ill and maybe coughing a little bit or something like that but they could have the the pace of this movie and the the antiquity of the storytelling in this movie it probably would have still fit if they'd just done a little bit like that could have been one of the him coughing could have been part of the cause for the calamitous toilet scene and things like that. Just, just to give a little bit of flavor to it and just pepper a bit more character development into the character of Jonathan rather than just Tom and Reeves. And maybe it's a cough while we're sitting mm. in the, in the, while we're doing the setting up the home alone scene in the, uh, in the mansion. There is a home alone mode in the mansion. Um, it's surprising how often that pops up in cinema. It's true. It's true. They had it in Nobody. They happened in Skyfall. Um, it's, 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 you know, we don't get the Kevin McAllister, Tom Ripley crossover we've been begging for. Well, let's, let's just face it. No one's done it better, better than Kevin. And maybe, you know, maybe we need that Kevin McAllister, Jigsaw, Tom Ripley, trip, you know, triple crossover. Oh wow, that's because there's that story going around that like apparently Kevin McAllister grew up to be the Jigsaw Killer, and that's why he's the way he is. Um, Love it, but um, uh, you know, in that in the, in the Home Alone setup, it could have been oh cough cough oh you're still sick how's that going? Actually, hmm. it's a bit shit. I've got six weeks to live. There you go, reinforce it for the audience. He's actually not yeah. well. Yeah, um, it didn't. This, I should note that my criticism of this didn't make this a horrible experience or a terrible film. I thought it was very competently made and, Hmm. and the weird vibe of it. I was talking about earlier, how it felt older than it really was. And so different to everything else you see on top of that, you've got Malkovich just chewing the scenery and Ray Winston doing what he does best. Mm -hmm. And you kind of go, yeah, this is pretty good. Hmm. And the, the fight scene on the, on the train, as you mentioned is, one of the more interesting fight scenes on the train. You know what it kind of reminds me of? Did you ever play uh, Red Dead Redemption 2? No. How can you work in a video game store and not have played that game? It's like it's the best game of the last 10 years. Mm. You need to play that game. That's, that's giving it's, no conversation. it's not my kind of game. It, it will be your kind of game if you play it because it's everybody's kind of game. Sure, but sure. It's got everything in there. It's such a great game. Look, it, does, does it let you catch them all? Well... Well, I mean, it's probably even available on a Nintendo Kitty Switch, like by now. Like, it's Those probably guys. out there. I don't know. <laughs> Dying Light's been delayed by six months, so I don't know. Um, but it's, uh, it's if you go around as a cowboy in that film, you can shoot anybody you feel like. Mm. Um, and you can be in the middle of nowhere sometimes and go, I'm gonna whatever. You might be hunting someone down for a bounty, or someone might have robbed you and you kill them. There's always some asshole on the hill who's like, Oh, I saw that and I'm telling the police, and then you go chase him. And then you got to kill him. And then somebody saw you kill that guy. 
So then you got to kill them. And it can turn into this ridiculous <laughs> chain of like killing people. Rube, Rube Goldberg murdered hobo. <laughs> like, you might get to kill four or five people just because one asshole stole your horse and you're like, he stole my fucking horse. I should be able to kill that guy freely. Um, <laughs> anyway, it kind of reminded me of that. And tell me that Welcome doesn't sound Travis, like fun. Travis's version of the purge, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, this is not an experience unique to me, trust me. Um, uh, but uh, if you, it's, it's, does that, does that oh, sound like fun? It sounds like fun. Um, uh, it's um, it kind of reminds me of the, the Lucy. Oh shit! One more keeps coming. Oh, there's another one. Let's kill him too. Um, yeah. Uh, how much have these guys been on a train toilet in the last thirty years? Like, there's not a lot of space in there. Where do they put them all? Mm-hmm. Well, it's you know, it the clipping. <laughs> it, it's just the animation of just putting the same person in there. It doesn't actually have a maximum body capacity or anything. They didn't program that into it. It's fine. <laughs> Uh, apparently, yes. Or or maybe it's like uh, Peacemaker and it's quantum storage or something in there. Um, <laughs> by the end, there were five fully grown adult men in that toilet. I don't know. I don't look, know. Been, you, you're from Europe originally. You've been on some trains in the continent, I'm sure. They're not that they, nice. No, they're not. They're about the size of this cube. <laughs> it's, it's, that's it. I, I guess maybe I wasn't supposed to be thinking about that, but I, <laughs> I was. Um, so this is this is an odd, odd film. Like, um, hmm. it is the fourth, I think, there, mm-hmm. or fifth. There are five different uh Tom Ripley films. There's Ripley Underground, starring Barry Pepper as Ripley, the talented Mr. Ripley, starring um, uh, of course, Matt Damon. We've got this one starring John Malkovich. There's one from uh, a couple of very old ones called Purple Noon and an American, the American Friend, which I think Dennis Hopper. Yes. and the American um, friend is um, uh, an earlier version of the same Ripley's story. Game. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tom Ripley, who deals in forged art, suggests the picture frame he knows will make a good hitman. I think mm. the hitman was played. Um, Bruno Ganz is in that film. He of course played mm. uh, Hitler in um, Downfall. Mm. Great movie. But, uh, Dennis Hopper is Ripley. I, I, I was always tempted to make that next week's film just for. Um, <laughs> shits and giggles but i think seeing the film twice same story twice in two weeks would be a bit much that would be interesting that would be interesting <laughs> overall though i kind of liked it despite a lot of its flaws because it just felt different um and it's it definitely gave me a bug to go out and i've been watching a lot of korean cinema um over the last six eight months a lot of korean tv and still loving all my um, Japanese animation and Japanese movies. But going back to French and Italian and German cinema, I I think I'm going to go down that rabbit hole a little bit and find some some less than normal Hollywood fare just because the that little peppering of that European production in this was really refreshing. <laughs> uh, if you know a German or Italian film or a French mm. film or any European cinema you'd like to suggest that's, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a little left of centre. It doesn't have to be in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, all it needs to be is obtainable. Yes. Preferably obtainable. Like, you know, we remember we are here stuck in the dark ages in Australia where, you know, like there's quite a lot of stuff you can't get legally. Honestly, SBS On Demand is not bad for world cinema. It's decent. It's decent. It's about as good as it gets, really. Um, yeah considering the <laughs> if it's not one of the Netflix exclusive specials, it's you know, tricky to find older films yeah. on the streaming services these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But um, we, I think that's kind of exhausted Ripley's I, game. I liked it too in its own way. It was like for a film I didn't had no no knowledge about. I've not seen, didn't say, so mm. didn't see it, the Matt Damon film. I was like, well, this is weird, but I like it. Mm. Yeah. I'm giving it a solid four out of seven. Four out of seven. If it's a definite four out of seven sort of story, <laughs> almost as good as The Dark Knight. Um, <laughs> no, so that is a reference to the, the five out of seven, the five out of seven meme. If you don't know what the five out of seven meme is, it's on the shirts. Google it. It was a thing about five years ago, but we're not letting it die. No, we are not. Now, Travis, you have got the keys to the kingdom. Keys to the kingdom. Um, Where are we going next? Uh, for a little while, I was going to follow Patricia Highsmith, who, of course, um, was the author of the book yeah. that this is based off. And we're going to go back and watch um, Strange on Train, uh, the Hitchcock film. But mm-hmm. um, I've thought differently about when I watched the film. Mm-hmm. I noted that the composer on uh, Ripley's Game is the one, the only, the incomparable Ennio Morricone. Yeah. Um, and that... Just the guy did a lot of different things in his career. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, he passed away, I think, a year or two ago. Yeah. Um, and the guy worked on literally hundreds of different projects mm-hmm. in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, from you know, more recently, he used to work quite regularly with Tarantino. Mm-hmm. That would be a little bit self indulgent. So instead, I have chosen, though, I think is acknowledged as a modern classic. Mm-hmm. And that is the 1966. Good, the bad, and the ugly. This is a film I have never seen. Really? I don't care for westerns as a rule. I always grew up in westerns where that boring ass John Wayne movie it was on TV on a rainy Saturday afternoon. So um, I've, I've never enjoyed many westerns at all. Um, but this is, as I said, is acknowledged as a... Oh classic of the ages it's got an 8.8 on imdb a 90 meta score it's the number nine movie in the imdb top 250 mm-hmm. you know uh starring of course the great clint eastwood ellie vark uh Lee van cleef directed by sergio sergio leone mm-hmm. um i imagine there'll be a few x's for you on the way out as you know uh, a very famous movie so yeah yeah see now <sighs> Instantly, I want to go. I want to follow on to one of my favorite movies of all time, following Sergio Leone to his magnum opus of a Western movie. But I'm not going to because Is it Once Upon a Time in America, yeah, Once Upon yeah, a Time. I thought about that, but that one goes for about four hours. Once Upon a Time in the West, not Once Upon a Time in America. That was that is really long and really slow. <sighs> uh, I think that one's I did consider Once Upon a Time, uh. In the West, but um, I think that's a very long film too. It is quite a long film, and I don't want to have to force you to watch two westerns back to back. Two hours forty five minutes. But again, that's ten minutes shorter than the Batman. So <laughs> <laughs> that's our new that's our new measuring tool. How many the Batmans is that? I, um, Travis, I, I have a request for your set design. You need to have the wall behind you just needs to be tons of knives. <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah, how long does it get to Sydney? Or oh, about four of the Batmans. <laughs> it's gonna be our measure. That's gonna be a new measure. If they get the metric system, it's all Matt Reeves films. Mm. Oh goodness me. It's uh, it's about a Batman or a revolver away. <laughs> 
but fantastic choice of good, bad, and the ugly. It's been a while since I've seen that one, so I'm very much looking forward to going and enjoying that one again. Um, oh yeah, I've got I've got it's a, a, it's a bit of a, a bit of a trip back in time, but not quite as far back as as um, as uh, Strangers on the Train would have been. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That would have been a tough one to get out of, but. It would have, we could have could have done something. Right, yeah, was it? But then you could always follow Hitchcock, right? Hitchcock can That's take true. her anywhere, right? Yeah. Um, though he hasn't made a film in about forty years. He's been very quiet since he died. I, don't know. I, th- I think he's just waiting. He's waiting for the right moment. Maybe it's just like Tarantino. He's just like, no, I'm done. Yeah. Um, I'm going to write novels now. Forty-five movies, and I'm done. Yeah, that's what he reckons. <laughs> um, should we? We had a conversation the other week. We're moving off the classic films of the sixties now, and Hitchcock mm. too. We had a talk the other week around one of your favorite uh, web series, uh, mm-hmm. podcasts, Twitch shows. Yep. All of those. Hobbies, um, critical Role based on Dungeons and Dragons um, and mm-hmm. has become a phenomena uh, around the world. Um, mm-hmm. Very big and has now scored itself its own television show on Amazon Prime. You challenged yeah. me to take a look because I am not, of course, familiar with the podcast. You're a big fan. So this will be an interesting yin and yang to see what mm-hmm. a, a critic, a, you know, a, a mad fan thinks and somebody who's a complete outsider. Um, hey, just because I'm a fan, it doesn't make me a mad fan. It is coincidental that I am also mad. <laughs> well, let say a big fan of a show, like someone who's really into what they do, very familiar with their content. Yeah. Um, the Legend of Vox Machina came out a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, is a six episodes launched now. Sorry, was that there's seven uh, six episodes now available? Um, so in a desperate attempt to pay off a mounting bar tab, a band of misfits end up on a quest to save the realm of Exandria from Mm -hmm. dark magical forces. This is an animated series. Mm -hmm. Um, the voice talent is pretty no name unless you're a fan of the podcasts and stuff i've never heard of any of these people before except for tony hale and david you've tennant. not heard of david tennant they said david tennant and tony <laughs> hale but they're only in two episodes the main cast are, are, are pretty anonymous again unless you're a fan of you know do. matt mercer because he is um uh what's his name uh fucking it's her noon in overwatch oh uh, the cowboy who had to have his name changed yeah, mccree no, oh, I'm McCree, but now something else. <laughs> they changed his name after the whole uh, yeah. sexual harassment thing. Um, okay, cool. Well, I didn't know his name, yeah. um, but I imagine these people are mainly voice talent, right? That's oh yes, guess. yeah. Um, they've they've been in a lot of things. Like just uh, just looking down, um, Laura Bailey is one of the queens of voice acting, particularly for um, American um, video games, as well as most of them actually all started up doing uh, dubbing for a lot of anime shows and things like that. One of my favorite anime shows of all time is um, Full Metal Alchemist, and both. Laura Bailey and Travis Willingham, who are a um, husband and wife couple. Um, they've worked together many times. They they both worked in that one as, as well as a huge number of other things. For other people who might not necessarily know the critical role stuff, um, Liam O'Brien, possibly his most famous voice role is that of um, villain turned hero Gara 
in the Naruto series. Um, Sam Regal, he has been all over the shop, literally everywhere. Um, one of the more recent games that he was the voice of, he was the 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 player character's voice in Rage 2. Um, and then Ashley Johnson, she, I guess, probably the most famous thing right now is either The Last of Us. She was in that. Um, and she was very, um, she was one of the key characters in Blind Spot, which is a TV show for a number of years. Um, Talos and so Jack, but not exactly a AAA talent in here, which is actually a good thing. It's like we've talked mm. before when we talked about uh, Marvel's What If, that mm. maybe getting screen talent instead of getting really great voice talent kind of let that show down a bit at times mm. in the sense that those two types of acting aren't necessarily always transferable. Um, so if, and it sounds like most of it, it was a, it was a Twitch show before it was a podcast, right? Uh, it was, it did both at the same time, essentially. Um, it started off just as um, a birthday one shot for, um, I think it was for, for Liam. And he, uh, they just kind of got together this, ragtag group of friends to play Dungeons and Dragons and many of them they hadn't played it before or it was the first time that they'd been playing since going being at college and that sort of stuff and it just became a bit of a, a local legend around voice acting community it's like oh Matt Mercer's doing this thing and they've been doing all this stuff and they would just talk about it in the recording studios and things and uh, Felicia Day um, she was doing Geek and Sundry at the time and she said hey would you be interested in just doing it on the stream? And that's where it just took off from there. It became the, it's become the biggest success on Twitch. Um, and it spawned, they're onto their third campaign now. They have had numerous people come, um, come in and do sessions. They've had Vin Diesel do a, a one shot with them. They had um, Joe Maglione come in and uh, cameo in a couple of episodes. They, are the the little train that could and they just keep on going and so they decided to use their their ever-growing fan base to launch kickstarter for a limited run animated series it was designed to just be a prequel series um just kind of setting setting up the team it broke records on Kickstarter very quickly and instantly they went, all right, we've ended up making like $15 million. We've got enough to make a whole series. And then it kept on just being so successful that they were able to sell it to Amazon Studios at a time. This was three, four years ago now, I think. Um, Amazon Studios is still quite fresh and new and they're still looking for new content and an adult animated show very much in their wheelhouse they were buying up a couple of things a little show that me and you both liked called uh, invincible one of the one of the shows that they picked up is adult animation um and now here we are the season has opened and it's uh, i'm gonna come out straight away and say it is jarring um purely because I know the first campaign so well. I know these characters inside out and backwards, and these actors have lived these characters for years. 
um, but it is an adaptation of that source material. So there's like, there are fun little nods in certain elements as like, oh, I know what that means, but they're not making a big deal of it. But at the same time, the story is kind of feeling rushed to what I'm used to. So I'm having to really divorce myself from the source material. And it's one of the hardest um, experiments that I've had to do with that. Like I adore the Dunes, the Dune books. And I talked a few weeks ago and I watched Dune, how much I loved it and how good it was at adapting that source material. They did a very good job. Another recent adaptation that I think they did a good adjustment adaptation was the Wheel of Time series to the book. Which has just been um, renewed for a third season, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Very good news for for me and for them. <laughs> um, so this, this is the hardest one I have because it is when you when you listen to it as a podcast, it's two to four hours per episode, depending on how long those sessions go. And they can really spend time in it. And because it's recordings of live essential improv there is always that good natural balance of pacing going through. There are those quieter, more reflective moments where they're just building character versus the action sequences where things go on. And so having to condense and expand at the same time in different areas and retranslate that story is a really bizarre scenario for me to go through. I am really enjoying it. I think they are doing overall a very good job. But at the same time, I do feel like they're kind of rushing it to because I, I know everything that has all of the other incidental stuff that's happened to the point at the end of episode six. It's like, wow, they've got there and they've changed a few bits. And oh, I don't know how I feel about that. It, I get why. But at the same time, oh, they, if they were going to they didn't need to keep that in, if they were if they were going to change it. And I'm nitpicking a lot, which isn't fair on the show to to nitpick as microbially as I am doing it. What I'm interested in is you have no experience with this. What are your thoughts on this new animated show that's just come out? My, my, my concern of a show is that it's a show of a strongly built-in fan base, like a massive built-in fan base that was basically made for that fan base. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm not familiar with it. Um, mm -hmm. So I was concerned about how are they going to now walk that tightrope between fan service mm -hmm. keeping them on board but also making it accessible to to everyone else who doesn't listen to the podcast mm -hmm. and they've failed miserably on that they've as expected come down a hundred percent on the side of fan service um now for me a fantasy hand up fantasy cartoons probably never really going to be something that was my my jam but it's as I mean, if there's a cliche this didn't employ, I can't think of it. Like, it's utterly cliche. Um, <laughs> and maybe that's the appeal. I don't know what the appeal of it is to its fans. Like, they obviously massively enjoy it. Uh, you jump online, you'll see it's getting massively good reviews. Um, mm -hmm. It's got an 8.8 .8 on IMDb. Mm -hmm. uh, I suggest that's largely its built-in fan base who just come on and give it 10s because... Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm sure they're loving it. I'm sure it's, it's just be brilliant to have your favorite podcast, you know, but you've been imagining your head now turn into an actual show mm -hmm. visualized. But 
uh, I didn't care about any of his characters. I wasn't given any reason to care about any of his characters. I wasn't mm. told who they were. I wasn't told why they are where, where they are. I don't know yeah. where they came from. How did they become a group? Don't yeah. know. Don't care. Here they are. They swear and they tell dirty jokes and have sex. Woo! That'd be edgy. <laughs> that I will absolutely agree with that, especially considering how the genesis of this animated show came about. And it was supposed to be just um, a couple of episodes of kind of the before they become Fox Machina. And they have failed in genuinely introducing and explaining each of the characters to anyone who doesn't already know. And that's bad writing, honestly. And if you really, it just says to me who they were writing the show for. That's right. They were writing it for the people who were already watching. And they don't really seem to give a shit about bringing any new audience in with this particular show. Yeah. Um, you know, this I don't. It hasn't been widely promoted, but then again, streaming services are pretty bad at that these days. Mm-hmm. So you very unlikely would know what's there. You mean you wouldn't know what it was? And you know, if you don't know what Critical Role is, I doubt you'd click on it to watch it. Yeah, look, it looks okay. It looks good enough, I guess. The animation's fine, if unremarkable. Um, uh, I don't know who did it, but it, it didn't have a problem with it. I wasn't necessarily bored by the show. It was like. Can you show me something I haven't seen before? No, you're just going to do what every fantasy thing ever does. Okay, cool. But you're going to have some swearing and sex in there. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, I didn't find it particularly compelling. Um, as I said, I kind of needed to be given some more information about who these people were, why they, mm-hmm. it, why they are the way they are. Mm. Why should I care about this group of people who, you know, they just kind of get around being douchebags, I guess. But um, it's... Um, Look, and I, I, I mean, take my review of this with a massive grain of salt. This is not my normal style of thing I would sit down and enjoy. I find most fantasy incredibly cliche because they all seem to adhere to the tropes so deeply. But, I mean, and I'm not familiar with the source material, so this is not a show that was made for me. I mean, it's not only is it the source material of the Critical Role show, but also the source material of Dungeons & Dragons, which has been so frequently for generations at this point been mined for basically every fantasy movie ever made plus its very tenuous um love-hate relationship with J.R. Tolkien's work and things like that so yeah it's kind of like well yeah it's going to be tropey because this is kind of the fantasy writer's guide source book every you you want to do fantasy writing you've got it you've got to know this 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 and this but i agree they they've failed on opening this up to a new audience and that's um, really my complaint here it's not so much that they've made a bad show it looks fine yeah. i'm sure it's it's a fan seem to be enjoying it hmm. my my question i was going to this with was really to try and actually remove it from something do i enjoy it do i not enjoy it because yeah. let's face it it's probably not something yeah. i'm ever going to really be loving because it's just not my thing yeah. but i was what i was trying to analyze is is this going to make are they making this accessible for people who don't know what critical role is and don't mm-hmm. want to listen to 600 hours of podcast because it kind of feels like that's what you'd have to do yeah um and honestly they they fail on that and, and, sorry it's a fail mark on that for me um yeah. if you are a fan of dungeons and dragons mm. if you are a fan of critical role i think george is giving you a pretty good heads up there yeah. may be some annoyances in there Hmm. But um, you're probably, it must be a lot of fun to hear all those jokes and hear the, the genesis of things that you 
heard about previously. I do in, enjoy a lot of it, but um, at the same time, if I want to experience it, I'll just re-listen to the podcast because I know I've listened to campaign one like nine times now. And it's still as emotional, comical, and brilliant every time. Um, this this is another another one. This is gonna be my 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 tally that I'm gonna do. Another streaming service where it's like, why are you still sticking to those fucking time time slots? Stop doing it. If you need an episode to run longer or shorter, just fucking do it. You are in control of that. Just do it. It's fine. Especially when the show is dropping three episodes at a time or dropping a whole season at a time. The amount of time does not fucking matter. Just keep it succinct and use the time that you need. And we'll talk about that a little bit with the um, chapter, um, chapter seven of the Book of Boba Fett. I haven't finished watching it, but it's a longer episode. They can do it when they want to. Why aren't they doing that with every? Just so you're okay, you are not talking about that because it hadn't gone live by the time I I got to start this show. I, I won't I talk about that chance. final episode, but just that it has got it's an extended. Okay, that's Big all. Big warnings on that one. And so I, yeah, it's they they can fucking do it. So why don't they fucking do it? Prime example was the What If series. I talked about it every fucking episode of that. There were some that could have just been five minutes, and some that could have been forty five. And this is another prime example of they're rushing through a lot of the story because it's like, oh, we've got 12 episodes or 22 episodes and we need to wrap everything up by that point. Like, well, no, you you don't. Just ag agree to the story in the production team and then break it down as you need to to make each episode enjoyable. That's um, simple. Just, just to tie the rope around the D&D &D theme, it's mm. a D&D &D themed comedy show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival this year. Mm. Um, that I believe George and I are going to go and check out. So uh, it's called Dice. Just to give him a free plug to absolutely no one who watches this show, <laughs> it's called Dice Paper Roll, and it's playing at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. So if you're a fan of that kind of thing, you might well dig that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's playing at somewhere called the Bard's Apothecary. So like that sounds like a very appropriate place for a D&D &D night. I think so. I think so. All the wenches, come on out. <laughs> I think it's time for our sponsor this week. I think so, yeah. Who are our sponsors for this, this week? week? Our sponsor this week is the uh, 1980s. Uh, being that it is a, we have Valentine's Day coming up on Monday. Mm -hmm. It is the 1984 edition of the dating show, Australian dating show, Perfect Match, starring Greg Evans. Okay. <laughs> Don't forget... Hashtag no discount at checkout. No discount. If you, you want to buy yourself an 80s game show. Yep. No discount at checkout. Yes, that works. <laughs> um. I love our sponsors. <laughs> I have no idea. Yes, it's perfect match. Now welcome the star of our show, Greg Evans. Thank you, thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you, everybody in the studio, and welcome to another Monday night and to you at home, wherever you may be perched in front of a telly set anywhere around Australia. We thank you for your company and welcome to Perfect Match. Here we go again with another fun week. And to introduce us to our first three tonight, here's Debbie Newsom. <laughs> How you doing? Did you have a nice weekend? Lovely weekend, did you? Fantastic. Yes, uh, still uh, still uh, the closing bits of the Olympics and a bit of the yes, television. Fantastic, and oh, it? Hasn't it been a spectacular mm. coverage? Yeah, Terrific. just wonderful. Congratulations to all those technicians on the 10 Network too. They yes. did a fine job. Now, um, being a Monday night, of course, we have a lot of people to bring back <laughs> this week. And boy, sure some do. funny ones coming up. Here's yeah. a taste of what some of them have to say. Well, I guess you probably think I'm a bit of a Casanova and a, a bit of a Ubu perv. He's not the sort of person that I'd like to go out with on a regular basis, no. So? <laughs> Love an inch. It was good, it was great. Well, I wouldn't say it on camera. <laughs> I said I would have clobbered him if he came near me. I hope I never have to see you again. I think we're going to have a lot of fun, then. Yes, Please tell I. us about these three ladies. Okay, Greg, our first contestant um, is an accounts clerk, Helen Daly. Hello, Helen, nice to see you. Next is a word processing supervisor, Jenny Keener. Hi, Jenny, nice to see you. And a bar attendant, Karen Halls. Welcome, Karen. Thank you, dear. Thank you. Good okay. luck, ladies. All right. Number one, more about yourself, please. Um, well, Greg, I'm passionately interested in studying Buddhism and astrology, and I particularly like to do it with the lights on. Right. <laughs> Number two. I'm a word processing supervisor for a leading oil company. Uh, I enjoy horse riding and live entertainment. Okay, and number three. Well, Greg, I like um, travelling and meeting new people, just going and having a really good time. That's the way. Good time, girls. Have fun on our show tonight. Yes, please, give them a big clap. Okay, next, out the back on a big black stadium awaits a man. Please tell us all about it. <laughs> right, Greg, our first single for the week is a hotel manager who loves surfing, squash, tennis, and keeping fit. Welcome, Russell Murphy. Guys, how are you doing? Very well, Hotel manager? Whereabouts? I'm a little bit hotel on the Sunshine Coast, Greg. You're from Queensland. Sunshine State. Yes, it's beautiful up there too. <laughs> I just thought it'd be funny if you want a date to Queensland tonight. <laughs> so do it, I. Uh, <laughs> be interesting. Uh, big hi to all our viewers in Queensland through TVO up there TVO, too. Yes. You watch the show up in Queensland? All the time, Greg. When I'm not working, of course. And why haven't you got a woman? Uh, live in Queensland. Is this? Uh, can I say this one on air? Well, there are too many in Queensland that are single to make my mind up, Greg. Really. Um, That's why I'm here. Well, I'm glad you said that on air. Um, have, a, have, a, have a seat, Russell. Have fun with us tonight. Wow. Wow. That was uh, that was good. Was that was good. Why don't you have a woman? Is the uh, the opening question. It was the '80s people, and I think I, <laughs> I think I'm not alone in saying. Dead set chick magnet, that bloke. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That, that mo, the skinny, the skinny tie, the cheap ass looking jacket. It was, it was an ensemble. And uh, that was a time capsule that I'm glad we have moved beyond. I was just going to say, I reckon it was a party in my pants and everyone was invited when that bloke walked on screen. Let me tell you right now. That was after seeing Greg Evans' haircut, by the way. Greg Evans, 
Uh, and you missed the best part of a show. At the end of a show, the um, there'd be a velvet contestants. The contestants would pick the woman. Would pick um, the bloke picked the woman. I can't remember. Um, there'd be a winner, a guy and a woman. There, and you've won a free trip to the caravan park in Dubbo. You'll be enjoying all the delights of Dubbo. Um, and, um, at the end, they'd be like, they had a little robot called Dexter would come out and go. Your compatibility has been calculated at 78%. It was just the best. Oh, no. And they did try and bring it back in the 2000s, but no, it was just like, no. Mm -mm. I'm just, you know, I'm just disappointed that the robot from Rocky 3 fell so low. You know, we got to keep working, you know. Ah, It was a little bit, it was exactly like that robot, by the way. (laughs) I think it might have been the second, it might have been his cousin. Um, you know, one of the bold ones, perhaps, in another life. Um, <laughs> should we um, stop talking about uh, TV yeah. shows from the 80s that you weren't in the country to enjoy? Mm-hmm. Um, I know that's why people regularly tune in. Um, can I talk about Pam and Tommy? Yeah, talk about the sex tape that shook the sex tape world. Is a sexy sex tape of sex. Yeah. All about sex. Boom. Um, Pam and Tommy is a new TV miniseries on Disney, of all things. <laughs> Disney. That's right. For one with a D. And, and trust me, this show's all about the D. Um, and it's on stars, and you there's quite a bit of nudity in this, and you're like, oh, Disney's mm-hmm. getting saucy in their old age. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those who are unaware, this follows the story of Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee's relationship going back to their whirlwind romance that started with them marrying after only knowing each other for 96 hours in 1995. Um, it's one of those interesting stories where, like, I was alive when this happened, mm. and I was vaguely aware of this kind of thing happening, and um, mm. that Tommy Lee was married to Pamela. I think I must have heard about it or something, but I feel like celebrity news was a little bit less ubiquitous in 1995 than it was. It was pretty ubiquitous but mm-hmm. um it wasn't everywhere like it is now so mm. apparently i meet people and they'll go like such and such a person's married to rihanna and it'd be like who mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um we are in touch with this world ah <laughs> uh, how do you do fellow kids um uh so but i think i was vaguely aware of this and i think there again there was a bit of fuss around about the sex tape that came out as well um, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of this story again. It's a little bit like um, I talked a few months ago about the latest season of American Crime Story, which was about mm-hmm. the, the Bill Clinton um, sex scandal with Monica Lewinsky yes. and how there was all sorts of things going on in that story. Like I vaguely remembered the, the big, the, the main dot points, but there's all sorts of minutiae in there. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. I had no idea about that. Mm-hmm. And it shows a little bit like that as well because, like, I didn't know that they knew each other for 96 hours. Um mm-hmm. Anything like that. So for those who don't know, if you're a little bit young, Tommy Lee was the drummer for a band called Motley Crue, who were a glam metal band from the 80s. Uh, trust me, by 1995, Motley Crue were fucking irrelevant. But um, they made a lot of money and they sold a lot of records once upon a time. And Pamela Anderson was the... Well, she was she was the hottest star of the most popular TV show on the planet. Slow motion running. Slow motion running, you know, uh, erectile tissue, cold water, you know, tight bathing suits. Um, I think there was a Baywatch movie a couple of years ago, if I'm not mistaken. I never yeah, saw it. Yeah, with Zac Efron and The Rock, yeah. Um, but she was the hottest star on The Hottest Show. And I can't – it was literally the most popular TV show on the planet. 
if the internet had been around, which it kind of sort of was, she yeah. absolutely would have been the most downloaded woman in the world. She was oh yeah, extraordinarily famous for her talents, beauty, and acting ability. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I trust me. Hard wire. I found I worked really hard to try and find a connection between um, Ripley's game and barbed wire. It just doesn't exist, unfortunately. You could do it through um, uh, the book of Boba Fett. Well, Big. unfortunately, that wasn't a chain movie. But um, what can I do? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the show stars Sebastian Stan himself yep. as Tommy Lee, and he really does well. He really disappears into the role of a rich rock star douchebag. Mm. Um, Lily James is unrecognizable as Pamela. Mm. If you don't know who Lily James is, you really ought to. She was in Baby Driver a few years ago, which I recall you and I very much enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, she was in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and she was a standout in a film that I didn't like very much because I'm not familiar with the source material. Um, and she was in Mamma Mia. Uh, mm-hmm. She was in Yesterday, um, which I really enjoyed as well. Um, she was in Darkest Hour. So I think she's a real up-and-coming star, Lily James. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, not to say she's actually a stunning woman herself, but she is transformed into Pamela Anderson in this film. Mm. And the other part of it is Pamela Anderson was well known for a particular bodily feature. And that is a particular bodily feature that um, Lily James does not have. Mm. Yes, it's correct. Pat, Lily James did have to wear a prosthetic forehead piece. I'm sorry. It had to be said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Lily James had to don multiple <laughs> Prosthetic forehead piece, fake eyebrows, fake teeth, fake breasts, and blue contact lenses. The whole process took around four hours, apparently. Um, when you it, think about four hours of makeup, you generally kind of think, oh, like Gamora from Guardians of the Galaxy or something like that. You don't think four hours to make you look like someone, another human being. Pamela Anderson. But, I mean, it's it's it pays off because... Um, the makeup work here is spectacular. You're like, I could be looking at Pamela Anderson herself. Mm, mm. Um, it's it's really high praiseworthy. Episode one, um, we meet the character. Oh, we meet the characters, obviously, with Pamela and Tommy. But we meet the character of Rand, who is played in this film by Seth Rogen. So TV show. Seth Rogen mm. is a carpenter who has been employed alongside a contractor to uh, redo or renovate Tommy Lee's bedroom. And Tommy Lee is an incredibly difficult um, client for them to have because he keeps insisting on changes halfway mm. through the process. He's just finished the bed over here. He's like, actually, no, I want the bed over here now. And they're like, oh, man, it's going to cost you a few thousand bucks extra to do that. And he goes, yeah, no, no worries. Money is no object. But the thing is, he's not paid them yet. So kind of is, mm. you know, for the guys who are paying for it out of their own pocket. And we sort of left it that the Rand tells us that he's paid for his work, uh, all the materials and stuff for his you know, the work he's been engaged in Alf on his Discover card at 18%. So they're getting kind of a little bit iffy about the fact that they haven't been paid any of their money yet. Mm. And then later he decides he wants a water bid. And they're like, that's going to take a whole bunch of extra work. And, you know, we're going to need, you know, you to pay up front for that, which he also doesn't do. Um, so he, Rand is a really put upon sort of down to these down and luck character. Mm. Um, and I mean, I guess I'm a little bit spoiler here, the things escalate. To a point where um, Tommy Lee fires them from mm. the job because they keep asking for their money and stiffs them on paying them. 
Mm. Um, so Rand decides to take revenge. Okay. Um, and uh, he takes his revenge in a particular way, which basically involves, I think it's fair to say, he robs Bobby Lee by stealing a safe. Okay. Um, and the insinuation is there's a whole bunch of shit in that safe. And one of the things in the safe is a VH, videotape. Mm-hmm. Um, and he takes this tape. It's a hot, little, remember the little videotapes that used to get the video cameras back in the ones. Uh, and he, because he can't play it, he takes it to a friend of his, a friend um, who is called Uncle Milty, played by the incomparable Nick Offerman, mm-hmm. who runs a porn studio. Uh, if actually, which at that point we learned that Rand had, at some point in the past also worked in porn. Okay. And when he actually puts that tape in the actual, what do you call it, the, V-shirt, the machine, they learn what's on that tape. And what's on that tape is a video recording of their Pammy and Tommy having sex on their honeymoon. Mm. Now, pause for a moment. Tell me, um, how based on true events is this? Because obviously the, the sex tape did leak. Um, is are these characters fictionalized characters um, for the sake of the story? Are they are they real characters? Is this what actually happened? Are they using it for dramatization? What's the situation? I don't know the answers to those questions. So it is interesting. Again, a little bit like the the Clinton show. I found myself diving into Wikipedia, going, "Hang on a second, hmm. what?" You know, and just trying to look up some of the details. So okay. this is going to take a little. This is not quite as well documented as the presidential um, impeachment scandal. You know, I don't know. it's crazy, I know. Um, <laughs> but it's a little, you have to be a little, a little bit more digging, um, a little bit more digging to try and find if that's really mm. true. Now, it is based on an article mm-hmm. uh, for, a, for a particular magazine, uh, which is where articles usually go. You'll be shocked to hear. <gasps> what? Um, remember magazines? Um Yes, it's an Amanda Lewis, Chicago Lewis wrote an article. So I don't, doesn't actually say here what the article was for, from. Um, but uh, I, you, you know, I would have to dig into how much of the film's based directly on the article. Mm. Was the article correct? I, the film is selling itself as being based on true events, right. where it varies from, you know, I would imagine they're taking some poetic license mm-hmm. with what actually happened. But I think I suspect the major beats are correct mm. in the sense right. that Tommy okay. and Pan were married. They did make a sex tape. It yep. was stolen from him. And it was eventually, I think we'll find as the show gets on, uploaded onto the uh, internet. Mm-hmm. So I'm only, I should note I am two episodes into an eight-episode season. Mm-hmm. So I haven't watched it all. I don't know if they're all up yet. I think it's they're doing their drip-feeding. We are four episodes up at the moment. Okay. Um, and this is really engaging, but so taking this on surface that it is largely based on mm-hmm. fact with some, you know, bits and pieces thrown in the place that make you go, make it a little bit more saucy. Mm-hmm. It's really well done okay. in a sense. Like I said, Sebastian Stam is, is slimy and creepy and sleazy and just looks like he would taste like salty garbage if you licked him, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> that is a Family Guy reference, if you if you know it. Uh, he, he just he, and that's exactly what Tommy Lee was like. He was slimy mm. and disgusting and insanely talented as a drummer, apparently. Mm. Um, 
And, and so he's re- and he gets around in his underpants most of the time, like a g-string underpants. And you're like, uh, the, the hilarious part of we learn in the second episode is that uh, Sebastian Stan's penis is a character in this show. He actually named no, I mean, look, yes, of course, he's the kind of guy who would have named his penis like he's yeah. exactly the kind of guy who would have done that. Um, but he actually talks back to him in um oh, no. in, in the show um which is actually terribly amusing um <laughs> and actually has conversations with with um with tommy himself about whether or not he should go ahead and um try and get with um pamela anderson or not um I'm trying to remember the character actor who voices it but, um I have been assured though, this is one of my one of my um Jason Manzukis voices the penis. Um if you have a look at him. Uh, Tommy Lee, he is credited as Tommy Lee's penis. That is exactly um he was in the dictator, he was the scarecrow in Lego Batman. Um he's in Big Mouth, he was uh oh, Rex yeah, yeah, yeah. Invincible. He's in Star Trek Prodigy, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's a very busy man. Yeah. Uh, he, he's actually very funny. Uh, he has a voice very nicely. But uh, this is one of those times where I delved into, into Google and go, is that Sebastian or is it not Sebastian? <laughs> it is not Sebastian. Uh, and it is a CGI puppeted penis in the sense it actually – <laughs> it has it moves around and talks directly to him. Um, it is it is very very amusing. I just got this image of this just the worst looking sock puppet ever. <laughs> the disturbing thing is this is not the only penis puppet that we'll be discussing this evening. That's all I've got to say about that. Um, <laughs> Look, spoilers for Pokemon Arceus. I know, right? Um, <laughs> But uh, it, it's a lot of fun. It's really well written. It's um, it's really entertaining. Uh, I found myself sucked in and kind of yelling at the TV a couple of times at like what an asshole that like Tommy Lee was towards his contractors, which is you know mm. as a as um you know as a unionist mm. of sorts. Um, I think is kind of kind of a shitty deal considering the guy had a lot of coin. Um, and again, don't know how real it was. The mm. showrunner is a uh, Robert Siegel. Not a massive name in the industry. He's an ex- ex- excellent writer, though. He wrote a lot of the episodes, and he wrote The Wrestler. He also wrote yeah. the, the Founder, um, the uh, Michael Keaton film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Mm. Um, so it's high-quality production values. I said the makeup's incredible, some really mm. fantastic acting, um, and it really sort of delves going to – it looks like it's going to delve right into the actual – but all the different aspects of it. We're not just going to go have a whodunit or anything like that, like something like an I, Tonya. It's going to be, I think, mm. I mean, the gist of a show essentially is this sex take came out and it enhanced a lot of careers and it kicked a, one career in the ass and that career was Pammy. Mm. So, you know, um, I suspect that's the story we get, the, the path we're going to go down in this show. So for the show, does it kind of does it draw anyone in particular as uh, the victim or the hero or the, the villain or anything like that, or is it? What just- I like about it is in episode one, Tommy mm. Lee is very much the villain. He's stiffing these contractors, he's sacking them simply because they're asking to be paid 
And I, you certainly don't feel bad for him, the fact that he got ripped off. Mm. Don't feel bad about that one little bit. Mm. Um, and Seth Rogen is sort of being set up as you know, the underdog who's kind of, you know, been hard done by and he's just, you know, he's sticking it to the man a little mm. bit. Mm. Well, episode two does take us, it sort of switches around a little bit. Now we're looking at things from a slightly different angle. Now we're looking at things, whereas the first episode was told entirely from largely Seth Rogen's perspective. Now we're seeing it from Tommy E's and Panny's perspective to a great degree. And we start to see some other aspects of those characters. We now see um, Seth Rogen's Rand from the perspective of Tommy when they first meet. And you know what? He's kind of an annoying, annoying little nerd. Um, like, he's really, that guy's a dick. Like, I, mean, I would be kind of like, I wouldn't be ripping him off, but like, maybe he's not the avenging hero that we thought he was in episode mm-hmm. one. So I think the show is is designed to tell a story from a number of different perspectives of different characters. Um, but I'm fascinated to go back and watch some more and and see mm. how it ends up. It's it's a lot of fun. Really, it's funny. It's entertaining. Um, it's for people of our vintage. It's like a bit of a nostalgia trip. Like um, mm. like oh god, I remember that song. Um, mm. Or you know, the fashion choices. You're like oh goodness, I remember those. Um, why did people think that was a good choice? <laughs> um, but you also remember how hot that you know how not isn't attractive, but how famous and the power of Pamela Anderson's fame at the time. Mm. Um, and I just it's um I would say though if you are bothered by excessive nudity, mm-hmm. um, then this is obviously not the product for you. Mm-hmm. Um, to steer clear of this, especially if you've got young kids, make sure they're in bed first. This is not for children. Yeah. Unless you know you want some very awkward questions about Sebastian's why, uh, why Bucky has a talking penis, you know, um, <laughs> just yet another advantage of a super soldier serum we hadn't been told about. Um, <laughs> oh no, you're right, buddy. <laughs> I could do this all day. <laughs> the promise, right myself, um, but I, I'm, I'm digging it. It's, it's really good stuff. Okay, cool. Very good. Good to hear. Uh-huh. Twenty-one. Uh, let's go. All right. Are you going to tell us about Pokemon now? Yeah, I'll talk about Pokemon. So, um, as is the uh, as with the tide, the moon, and the sun rotating around the Earth, there is a new Pokemon game. This one has finally started to do something that the Pokemon franchise is famous for it's about evolution of the characters and gaining experience and evolving to different states of these little pocket monsters the pokemons and pokemon arceus is the first big change in the pokemon franchise in a lot of ways but it does keep a lot of the same stuff going on so anyone who doesn't know anything about pokemon you are a pokemon trainer who is essentially let loose on the world. It seems to be a rite of passage in the Pokemon world that you get to, like, maybe 12 to 15 years old. You just randomly give it a backpack and a a random Pokemon to start you off. And so, like, go, experience the world. Bye. Make sure you call. But you never actually have to or anything like that. And you go around and you collect all these pokemon you build up your team and you take you take on these different gyms and earn badges to become the best there ever was um 
Pokemon Arceus does shake that up somewhat because you are displaced in time. This is the earliest in the Pokemon timeline that we have ever been as um, uh, fans and players. This is um, not your typical, I'm going around and having all these gyms. This is much more quest-based. And you find yourself in, a, in this ancient or a very old um, civilization era kind of think, um, I think kind of feudal Japan inspired kind of setting largely. Um, but you have been sent back in time by God, maybe God for reasons. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I don't really pay attention to the story of Pokemon because why bother? Did um, they even bother with a story? Like, you know, there's, there's a story I've, I've heard. I just, I'm skip, told. I skipped the end. <laughs> um, but you join um, a survey team, essentially. You are going around and you are collecting Pokemon to fill out the Pokedex. And as you do this, you can take on um, little quests from other people to, like, oh, I need. So um, the, this particular Pokemon is very good at helping chop down trees and I need them to build, build uh, the town and youth, blah, or whatever. And you go around and you complete, complete them. Um, the first true, true 3D Pokemon game to come out was a couple of years ago on Nintendo Switch called Pokemon Sword and Pokemon Shield. And these, it still had the very typical your starting location and then you go around to these set areas and you you complete the game from step one to, to ten essentially. Um, but in Pokemon Sword and Shield they had much bigger areas where you could wander and you'd see Pokemon randomly drifting around. This has taken that to the next step. And when this was first announced there was a lot of people, myself included, that just looked at the opening trailer and so like, oh fuck, this is Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild meets Pokemon. Cool, I'm all down for that. It's not entirely that, because it hasn't got the broad scope of, oh, where you start as Link in Breath of the Wild, you come out of the cave and you can literally see the end goal of Hyrule Tower and the smoke of Ganon just going around and around and around. And you can, if you want to, you can just go straight there. This one, it is still somewhat gated it's broken down into pretty large quadrants but they're a little boring and it feels somewhat sparse this is this is a prototype for i think that if if this is successful which it's already sold over six million copies it's gonna get us nintendo people buy what they're told to buy yeah um pokemon people just crazy Pokemon people are crazy. Yeah. I'm looking right at you. Yeah. All of you. Luke, I know you're not watching, but I'm calling you <laughs> out. <laughs> um, and it's a good start, but considering I'm pretty sure they're using the game engine of Breath of the Wild, there are a lot of things that don't don't quite measure up to that and especially considering it's six or seven years old and they haven't been able to perfect it like they're still popping for some of the graphics the areas aren't as inventive as you would want them to be um but it's 
for a company that has been around for a very long time, uh, Pokemon, I'm not talking about Nintendo specifically, but them as well, they're over 100 years old, It's it feels so slow. And it's nice that they've actually brought in a little bit more of the Western RPG of that, um, the side quests and things like that that aren't necessarily important to it, but they they help you learn more experience and things like that. Thinking um, Red Dead Redemption is a prime example of a quintessential Western RPG, where it's like, here's your sandbox, go play, do. There is a story, follow it if you want. Yes, absolutely, it's a compelling story, but you will be sidetracked by everything else. Um, where that has something like that was really foundational of bringing that level this is kind of baby's first rpg more so than any other pokemon game because you can't really fail and it's really easy like i've i've had to encounter like there are there are some pokemon that are wandering around and they've got kind of big red eyes and they are alphas you there's not actually any real incentive to collect all the alphas beyond just saying, I've got all of them. I've completed my alphas, which for me, that's just the job I do Monday to Thursday at, at work. And it's like, yeah, I completed my alphas. I got paid for that. Whereas going to Pokemon, <laughs> I, I paid them to do this. Something's wrong with that system somewhere. Um, there's no incentive because you can just level your, characters up and more often than not it it literally kind of like when you go into the the attack options and all of the different the four different moves that each pokemon can have at any one time it'll tell you right on the screen if it's effective not effective super effective versus your opponent so it takes a lot of the learning of the game out and it's just like okay well it just it's basically saying okay you're using this pokemon so use that move you're using this Pokemon against that one, it's not going to work. So change your Pokemon. You're not really, you probably get a hit when you change over the Pokemon because you'll have missed your turn because it is still turn based um, action. It's disappointing, is the, the truth of the matter. And anyone who says that it's really good is very desperate for a new, fresh Pokemon. And this in a similar way to The Legend of Vox Machina, where there's a lot of lore that people who are Pokemaniacs will know, you suddenly go, oh my god, that's that, that's the symbol that's used in such and such, in the Johto region, and blah, 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 blah. For me, I haven't been interested in Pokemon since the first game, and that came out, and it was on the Game Boy, so it was green and black. So <laughs> I didn't care what color my Pokemon was because it looked the fucking same. <laughs> um, this is for the fans entirely, but at the same time, because they're trying to do some new bits and evolve the gameplay and evolve the way that the story progresses, I am hearing and I understand why a lot of people are going, oh, no, they've fucked it up. They've taken the bit that I liked at, out of it. It's like, okay, well take the game back don't play it <laughs> it's just it's it's another half step and it's very indicative of the way that the pokemon company make their games of ridiculously slow paced considering how many games they churn out they are 
copy and paste, copy and paste, copy and paste. Oh, it just seemed to be the same thing again and again and again with these games. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of different. They've never made like a Pokemon first person shooter. Now that would be interesting. Um, or I don't the know. The closest they have to that is um, uh, Pokemon Snap and new Pokemon Snap, where you go around, or, and you know, an open world sandbox Pokemon game where you do something other than just throw balls at something on the screen. That is exactly what Pokemon Arceus is. And it's like, okay, this is supposed to be an open world sandbox in a, the wilds before the land was tamed by man. There's like, well, these Pokemon are really chilled. They're, they're just wandering around near a waterhole. I can sneak up to them in long grass. I throw a, I basically am enslaving every Pokemon. And I'm like, mm, I don't quite know what message this is trying to deliver. It's just weird. I would have loved it if this would have been, they would have just taken it. So like, ah, this is before the big cities that you are experiencing. This is wild Pokemon, legitimately wild Pokemon. So like, okay, we're going to see, it would be cool if it was like, oh, you, you know what? These Pokemon roam in herds and you are going to, if you attack one of them, if you try and catch one of them, you're going to have to deal with the fucking herd. Nah, none of that. If if their, their movement pattern happens to overlay with you, you can, while you're fighting another Pokemon, another Pokemon will come in. But it's not as if, like, more of that type. Like, you could be up against a Golbat, for example. And there'll be other Golbats flat, flattering around. But if you attack one, it's not as if, like, oh, someone's attacking our herd, we'll come and help. It's just they'll leave you alone until their, their programmed path hits you and then it's like oh okay now they're part of it it's lazy it doesn't sound like no it's i'm probably gonna keep going with it slowly because it is it does have a lot of quests in it and it is a good game to just pick up and play for like 10 15 minutes and then put down and you do feel like you've made progress but yeah it's it's not... I think you've got another game in your I think you picked another new game this week, right? As well. I did. I did. Well, might, hopefully I might be hearing something a little bit more positive about than Pokemon. <laughs> yeah. So uh so I picked up Dying Light 2. Now, Dying Light 2 is the seven years, six years in the making sequel to a very popular, very successful Dying Light, which was made famous as taglined with the um the parkour zombie game. And that was essentially what it was, but it had a lot years and years of post-game content and became very, very popular. I believe that you played it, yeah? I did play a little bit of it. My computer is now getting a little old now, so <laughs> it complained vociferously when it was forced to play it. Um, <laughs> so I never got all the way through it simply because my, it would heat the computer up so much. As it, uh, it, it goes like, I'm like, if I... Don't stop. It may never switch on again. But I, I did enjoy it. It was a fun game. Mm. So I never experienced Dying Light at the, when that game came out. I didn't have an Xbox, didn't have a PlayStation, um, and I haven't had a PC gaming console, uh, gaming system since up until now. Um, but Dying Light 2, it definitely caught my attention. And apparently looking at all the games that are on my Xbox, I think I've got five zombie games on there. So you have infected me, sir. 
<laughs> I apparently have a favorite genre now, and it is uh, zombie games. But um, this just looked like fun. And a couple of days before it released, which was last week, um, uh, some of the reviews came through and it was getting a lot of sixes, maybe a seven here or there, occasional eight. But a lot of people were saying that it was very buggy. So I went into it with a bit of trepidation. But fortunately, the only bug that I have found so far, and it was, I don't even know if it qualifies as a bug. I was uh, uh, talking to a, a, a side quest, and this guy's like, sort of a pastor kind of guy. So like, oh, we're just doing this for the children, and the camera kind of pans. So it's it's a cinematic moment, and you see one kid just sitting at a table drawing, doodling, and looks up at you and smiles <laughs> in the background. It's just another kid. Just, just walking into the wall repeatedly. And, and it's just paired with this, this pastor just saying, yes, these poor kids, they have to deal with so much trouble. It's like, is that actually a character thing of the kid walking into the wall? Is that a programming thing? I don't really know. Yeah, it's, that's probably a bug. Yeah. But it, the 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 point is, there's there's a level of stupidity to this game, and already, like I was talking to my personal trainer about it, and he he started playing it same as me, and he said, oh, there was this um, nod at the beginning to to the name of the character that you play in Dying Light One. It's like, oh, okay, I didn't know. Um, so it's curious to see how the two games are going to tie up. But you play um, a character called Aiden. He's a pilgrim. And pilgrims are essentially Kevin Costner's The Postman. They are the ones that will run through the wilds of the country between the big cities, essentially doing jobs, whatever needs to be done, sending messages, finding people, all of that sort of stuff. But they are largely disliked. Um and you start the game out in the wild and it's your typical tutorial of learning how to do the parkour and registering. Oh, okay, I see a little bit of yellow on that um, ledge there so I can use that to shimmy myself up and things like that. So you can read the terrain and do the parkour. Then you get to uh, Villador, which is the name of the big city that you're operating in and instantly you are hung. <laughs> There's a, essentially a lynch mob because you don't have this band on you saying whether you're infected or not, and you are saved by a good Samaritan, and it drives the story from there. You, as your character, your goal is to try and find your lost sister, Mia, and you have received information that someone at Villador knows where she is, and then it just kind of opens up what I am enjoying about it is you've got um, a, a basic um, sort of like progress tree of combat or parkour. And as you're doing things day and night cycle, you'll get extra bonuses for doing parkour at night or combat at night when things are harder and zombies are more prevalent. Um, so there is benefit to just literally running around because running around, moving, beating up random people, bandits or zombies or whatever you come across, you are always kind of being rewarded for, for your efforts. And there's a lot of side quests. They came out 
about a month ago and said, oh, there's 500 hours worth of content in the game if you complete all the side quests and everything as well. Um, and I am enjoying kind of being distracted in the similar way to, to The Witcher 3 and to Cyberpunk and those sorts of things. Where I was like, I don't really care about the main story. I'm just having fun. And it's the same thing that I had with uh, Titanfall 2. I really loved that game. The story was very good, for one thing. But the movement, the fluidity of moving around felt awesome in Titanfall 2. And it's a little buggy here. There, sometimes it's like, I'm pretty sure I made that jump, but you just glitched out there and dropped me, and now a chase sequence has happened. Thank you very much. But overall, it feels really good. And as you progress up, you, you get other... You, you can improve your parkour abilities and stuff like that. It's, I think it's quite a beautiful game. It's not the prettiest game in the world. It's, uh, it has chosen its art style and everything fits rather nicely with it. Um, considering everything that is going on and how in comparison to Pokemon Arceus, where I was saying it's very barren, this, in spite of it being an apocalyptic city, feels very lived in there's a lot of zombies around and there are a lot of people around and you you never go too far without hearing random people having a conversation about sort of like being stung by a bee and someone saying oh i, I want to kill the fucker it's like no if we don't have the bees then we don't have honey and we we need the honey and all of that sort of stuff like they just they've scripted nicely and made the world feel alive which I applaud considering the size of the world that you have, but it's not really doing anything particularly new. I'm just very much enjoying this so far. I would like to play it, but mm. um, it was $100 on mm. the Microsoft store, and I'm not paying that. And yeah. we had a conversation over text about mm -hmm. why it's so damn expensive when you, you know, they don't have to pay for shipping or a storefront, the usual complaints. They don't know it's a scam that it's basically uh, a tax to keep brick and mortar stores in business, which helps some of us out there. Um, <laughs> but uh, more than that, uh, we were talking about playing um, uh, our multiplayer or co op together. I have heard mm. that Crush Gang co op is not available yet. Mm. Mm. So uh, I'm happy to be corrected. I've heard people say it is and isn't. But yeah, I don't believe it's available, and because you're playing on the next gen console, and I'm playing on my cruddy old Xbox, <laughs> um, and I often have worries where it'll play well on my Xbox. I've heard again the stories from people playing on last gen who are not having a good experience in terms of yeah. frame rate and such. Yeah, I that it is a visually taxing game, and I would not be surprised if the original Xbox One has smoke coming out of the back of it. Um, what what irks me okay i have noticed this now i got the disc version and i put it in and it downloaded all the data on the disc really quickly because there was only like 340 megabytes of data on the disc and the rest was a fucking download and it's like what this is a blu-ray disc you can fit easily 50 gig onto one of these standard discs why the fuck is the why why what is the point why even have a disc in there just have a code in a box at that point what is the fucking point which is a good point actually in a way like why do they not there's no it must be a 
again, some sort of scam to keep brick and mortar retailers in business. But mm. why can't I just buy a code online? Well, you that's the thing. You can. They sell codes in boxes. There are for those collectors who want to have a case, that is an option. We you know that you can do that for Halo Infinite. For the people who have Game Pass, you can buy a code, whatever you like. I just don't understand the point of it. If it's essentially just going to be a digital game, why? Why even have the disc? So um, it's disappointing, but I'll get to it at some point. Mm. But I guess I, at this stage, I'm waiting a couple of months for them to mm. fix up their bugs, mm-hmm. to actually have cross-gen co-op mm-hmm. in the game, which, considering how long this is in development, mm-hmm. it's pretty disappointing yep. that that's not available at launch. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to sell, right? I mean, considering how rare various um, next-gen consoles still are to it today, mm-hmm. so um, disappointing on that front. But I'm, um, I would get to it at some point. I've also heard the story is incredibly disappointing. Um, not that I guess that really worries me a great deal because ninety percent of video game stories are kind of meh. But yeah. um, I've heard it's it's noticeably terrible. I'm kind of enjoying it at this point but i don't think i'm going to be surprised i don't think this is going to win any awards for storytelling at all i i have my ideas of what of how the story is going to progress and i'm not particularly interested in it which is why i'm just enjoying what i enjoy of the game which is running around purposefully causing chase sequences and seeing how long I can survive before I have to hide like a baby. <laughs> um, the the other thing that I will point out about this, it is good at building tension. So um, particularly when you are kind of doing more of a stealth mission and you are slowly but surely going through because the darkness in some of the buildings at night is pitch black. And... You have to navigate your way through sleeping zombies and things like that. And it does genuinely make you feel really nervous and curious. And it it balances it nicely because you have your survivor sense, which is just another way of saying a special button so that you can see the bad guys and see all the items that you need to collect. And it does balance it rather nicely because you want to get through and just do it but at the same time ooh, lots of shiny i want to can i do that and if you're smart you can kind of go around and take down the the zombies without causing too much of a fuss but i was impressed that it was actually making me feel tension and nerves and a bit of paranoia about it so kudos to them for that at the very least uh, we're cracking on towards two hours. I'd like to try and get in under two hours this week. We've been very tardy of late. Yeah. So to uh, say hmm? we could quickly talk about some jackass. Yeah, forever. talk about jackass forever. Uh, so this is the new jackass movie. I'm sure everyone's shocked at Paul with that title to have heard that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the first jackass movie in 10 years. I was surprised to. Um, here, because I remember seeing Jackass 3 and going, Oh, okay, um, and kind of enjoying it at the time. Um, and like, wow, that was 10 years ago. Fuck, how long where'd they go? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's the first Jackass of anything, and then we made a couple of, I mean, it was Bad Grandpa and a couple of those other yeah, things. Yeah, that's right. The first proper Jackass branded product in about 10 years. So, mm-hmm. those who aren't familiar, maybe if you're very young, I guess, um, or 
just very class, too classy for that kind of entertainment. Um, this Jackass started as a TV show, um, but on MTV about 20 mm. years ago now. I think it was almost exactly 20 years ago now. Um, 2001, I think maybe 2000. Um, and it was basically a bunch of idiots doing stunts and kicking kicked in the balls. About as complex as it gets. Well, um, it, it wasn't even that, like. They, they had to officially label it like at the start like they had to they got branded as stunt people so that they could get insurance and stuff like that wasn't it, it because they, they're not actually trained stuntmen or I think some of them might be some of them were professional skateboarders and that sort yeah. of thing um some of them were just idiots um some of them <laughs> I, I think might have been actual stunt performers of some description. But, yeah, they would have a little warning at the start of a show going, don't attempt any of us at home. Uh, it kind of, as per most things, it kind of outraged the public morals, especially in the United States. People are like, oh, my God, won't somebody please think of the children? Mm. Um, <laughs> and now we're up to the fourth movie. Um, and this is a weird one for me in a sense mm. of um, I actually had a conversation with someone today who said, did I read your Facebook right that you went and saw a jackass movie? on Monday night, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. and I go, you paid for that, and I go, yeah, and I said, I haven't laughed that loud, in, that hard in years, literal <laughs> years, um, and they decided to be a little bit judgy about it, and I had to remind him, but he was a big fan of his show, I know Steve's not watching, but he was a big fan of that show back, he's like, well, I've just become a little bit more mature, um, and so, grow up, it's a trap, that's a good point, you know, yeah, don't take life too seriously, you'll never get out alive. Um, <laughs> so I can't explain what it is about the TV show, which I used to love and the movies, which I have enjoyed each and every one, because people who watch the show regularly, or maybe who know me, I'm incredibly picky about comedy, like film mm -hmm. comedies in the last 10 years that have actually been funny. I could count them on two hands. Um, yeah. stand up comedians I've gone to see in the last few years who I've actually found amusing, just that, that it would be a barren wasteland. Um, you know, the amount of times I'll roll up to gigs and comedy shows with friends of mine um, who are big fans and I'll be like, oh, this person's amazing and they see everyone else laughing and I'll be like, sorry, this isn't very good. So I'm yeah. very, very picky, which is you know, he's, he's on me. But um, something about these shows, there's something about people being utterly stupid and hurting themselves in the process. It just, just tickles me. I mean, it is man getting hit by football on a massive scale. Oh. oh my groin. Um, I wonder if um, this is going to be a, it's, it's already proven to be a success in the box office, especially in America. Um, I wonder if this is actually gaining a little bit because in the time that it's been since the last Jackass movie, we've got things like TikTok and Instagram videos and things like that, where it's almost this show there's there's a subsection of that comedy of tiktok that is jackass so I, I think you're right um this, so this show does bring back most of the original crew mm. who are still alive ryan dunn died in 2011 mm. um and so he's not on not in this one and um for those who are fans might remember bam margera he mm. uh when his little cky crew were a big part of the original show and movies as well. Mm. Uh, Bam still has trouble with substance abuse. Mm -hmm. And I believe the story was he had to sign uh, a sobriety pledge to, to take part in the film. 
He mm. did not stay. He did not fulfill his end of a bargain. He didn't stay off the gear. He didn't go to rehab. And then was fired uh, from the film. And then Sue Paramount and, mm. and the rest of the Jackass guys over it, which I assume he lost. Um, but it delayed the release of the film somewhat. So mm-hmm. you won't see, unfortunately, which is a shame because like, I used to think his stuff was funny as well. But um, he's not here. But most of the original crew. But they also have a bunch of younger guys as well. Mm. A new new um, new stars. Um, uh, Rachel Wolfson is one. Um, I can't remember the other guys' names. There's a few other new ones in here as well. Mm-hmm. And and actually go through at the end and they say this is how they found them. Like Rachel Wolfson's. I think Johnny Knoxville saw her doing stand up comedy on Instagram. So they found someone on YouTube. This person was on Instagram as well. Cool. So it, it actually, these people were discovered, if you will, doing stupid shit probably um, <laughs> and stunts and stuff on, on social media. So you're right. This would be um, probably where these people are actually being discovered now. Mm. But also, funnily enough, this has a 7.74 Metascore from critics. Um, I've even seen like some pretty stuffy um, reviewers like um, Mark Commode. Again, I, we talk about him occasionally. He's a BBC yeah. film reviewer who I quite like watching his stuff. And he's usually very, not exactly highbrow, but he's usually fairly mm. selective about what he enjoys. And even he gave us a reasonably positive review. So it's actually really fucking funny if you like this kind of slapstick, ridiculous humour. Mm. Um, the other thing it is kind of, I guess, to be noted as somewhat interesting on this is that, um, you know, in a, in a world where we still see significant, I guess, exploitation of, of, of women who get significantly shittier roles in films and, you know, mm-hmm. they you know, uh, they are objectified still heavily in film and video games. There is an extraordinary amount of frontal male nudity in this film. Um, <laughs> this is, of course, the home of the second penis puppet of the evening. Um, the opening of the film involves um, Chris Pontius's penis t- uh, painted like a Godzilla. Um rampaging through a, a miniature city um, in a, a piss take on a disaster film. Um, and <laughs> uh, there, some of the stunts include uh, which one of the guys, I can't remember which one of the guys, um, Aaron, I think, um, having to, uh, what they, re, I guess, revisiting something they called the cup test, which they did in an earlier movie, I think, which basically involves him wearing what in Australia would be called a box. Oh, or yeah. a protector, um, Americans call it a cup, um, and being uh, hit in the groin <laughs> both by a heavyweight boxer, MMA fighter, a hockey player with a hockey puck, a the world's fastest softball pitcher, and then one of the other jackass guys with a pogo stick. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sorry, that's just funny. Um, <laughs> Um, but my favorite skit, skit was a sketch. Uh, sketch was uh, they had they engineered the situation where they managed to lock um, some of the, the crew, the guys, in a room in pairs, and then they would lock the door unexpectedly and turn the lights off, and they'd be in pitch black. And they called this sketch the, the Silence of the Lambs because Johnny would be enter the room um, surreptitiously wearing um, night vision goggles. And previously, they had been talking about how Johnny was going to do a sketch with a um, or a stunt with a rattlesnake, and okay. so 
that's on their mind because they just saw the rattlesnake. And so they turn the lights off, slam a door shut and lock it. And then they put the sound of a rattlesnake into a room and uh, throw fake spiders at them and stuff like that. It was just, <laughs> it's kind of cruel, but just, just, just so damn funny. Okay. Um, it's, it's really, you know, from people, a, a sketch where they dressed as mimes and had to do ridiculous things without making any sound, including licking a uh, taser and uh, kissing a snake or Rachel Wolfson one scene had to get scorpion Botox. Join the dots on what that is. Um, There are some fairly well-known cameos in here. Um, We have uh, uh, Machine Gun Kelly, who I understand is a musician of some description. Yes. Uh, Interestingly, he also played Tommy. In, in a different, um, the other Motley Crue thing. Yeah. Uh, he's married or will be married or is hooked up with Re- Megan Fox, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, I think so. Um, we have uh, Spike Jones. Spike Jones, a man who'd made being John Malkovich, is a producer on this and, and uh, appears in it himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a few other, uh, sorry, um, Eric Andre is the other name you'll probably recognize in here. He does a, does yeah. a couple of sketches and wrote some of the scenes. Yeah. Um, Probably the most entertaining part, or just to sort of show that this isn't bullshit. Um, in one scene, uh, one sketch, uh, Johnny Knoxville performs a magic trick for a bull and literally gets knocked down like a 360 and broke a wrist, broke his ribs, and got a significant bleed on the brain as well. Oh, as part of a concussion. So, you know, this is not this is not fucking around. And these guys, yeah, these guys are in their late 40s, early 50s. So, um, it's quite this remarkable they're still stupid. going. It's, it's pretty stupid. But look, I, I can only talk about the fact that I w- was in hysterics. This is an utterly hilarious film. If you're too pretentious or stuck up to enjoy someone getting hit in the nuts, then this is absolutely... If, if you're really, really turned off by male nudity, you're really turned off by people getting hurt, you're really turned off by very slapstick comedy, there is no story. That should be absolutely clear. There's absolutely no story. This isn't like the Eric Andre film from a couple of years ago where I I can't remember exactly what it was called, um, but it was kind of bad trip. Um, And he was sort of doing Shaka-style stunts, but in the context of an actual story. Mm. There is no story. It is a sketch, stunt, stunt, sketch, ad nauseum. Um, And it's it's highly, highly amusing. So, look... um, it's it, everybody seems to be digging it. So uh, look, I would give it my thumbs up and go like, I thought it was okay. hilarious with you, but with the intense caveat there, but this is absolutely not going to be for everyone. Okay. I am keen to watch it and it does make me kind of nostalgic. And I think I'll try and see the, the, the first, first three again, because it's been a long time since I've it has saw to, them. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was trying to think, I know I saw the first couple, I actually think I saw a Batuta Advocate article on Facebook that said um, middle-aged man watching Jackass Forever realises it doesn't look the same as watching the first three on a DVR. <laughs> yes. yes, yes, that's correct. I'm pretty sure that's how I watched them. You get me. You get me. <laughs> All right. Well, um, do you want to just stop it there so we are under the two hours and then we can save our talks of Boba Fett for the finale, because the finale tonight, and I think we might be one close. We get a couple of weeks away from um, we've got two Peacemaker. more episodes of Peacemaker. Yeah, yeah. 
So let's end it there, and we'll um, we'll do a big big Boba blowout <laughs> um, <clears throat> phrasing, <laughs> big Boba Fett blowout uh, next week. We're talking about the finale and our general thoughts of the whole season. We will have an update on Peacekeeper. Um, Travis has sport me rotten by choosing the good, the bad, and the ugly to be our new chain movie. We talked about Ripley's Game, Pam and Tommy on Disney Plus, Jackass Forever just there, Legend of Vox Machina on Prime Video, and I talked about Dying Light 2 and Pokemon Arceus. Um, I'm gonna still trying to get around and watching Nightmare Alley. If a cinema actually fucking showed it instead of just seven screens of Spider-Man. Three screens of sync. It's quite remarkable, but that's still number one in the box office most places. Mm-hmm. It's impressive. Apparently, it's going to overtake the um, US domestic uh, total of uh, Avatar. So that's a it's good. Avatar, so that's good. Yeah, it's true. It's true. All right. Well, on that note, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us for episode 137 of Armchair Producers. I have been George Turn. That has been Travis Croft. Thank you so much, and we will see you next week. Good night. Good night.